Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Appreciate all your prayers for me during my illness and hospitalization. It gave me a fresh appreciation for people who are sick long term. After a month, I, I was sick of being sick and telling people I was sick. And I just uh, encourage you afresh to not grow weary of praying for and serving those uh, you know who suffer with long-term health issues. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Because God is so holy and we are so sinful, we are incapable of saving ourselves from our sin and its consequences. And because according to verse 4, God desires all of us to be saved For this reason, he has given us or provided us a mediator, a a go-between person, someone to stand between God and us, the gap between God and us being a distance too great for any of us to cover or surmount on our own. Thus, verse 5 says, there is one God and there is one mediator, representative, substitute, go-between, priest, lawyer, advocate, One mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. If I could have the first slide, please. We have been learning about the five solas, sola scriptura. We get our beliefs from the Bible alone. Sola fide, we are justified by faith alone. Sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Today's sola, solus Christus. Christ is the only mediator between God and man, and solely Deo Gloria. If the first four souls are true, then God must get all the glory for our salvation. We are on the fourth sola today, Solus Christus, who is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Thank you. You can turn that slide off. And I recall that the solas are a summary of Reformation theology. They were put together in the 1500s. The issue at that time, the question was, how many mediators are there between God and man? You recall that the church split on this issue, and the church disagrees to this day on this issue of how many mediators there actually are. Uh, You know that uh, in the broader church, some pray to others besides Christ, believing that there are other mediators in addition to Christ. One of the distinctives of Protestantism, of course, is this belief in one and only one mediator, and that's why You never hear a Protestant pray to anyone other than God the Father through Jesus, his son. Uh, 
However, although the original Reformation issue in the 16th century was on the question of how many mediators ought there to be, and the church at large still disagrees on this question, the church at large does agree on the more general issue of whether or not a mediator is necessary. Okay, all people who name the name of Christ on this planet at least are united in, in this idea that somebody does have to be there between God and man, that it is not possible for man to go straight to God. Secular humanism being uh, such a powerful religion in America, controlling education and the media as it does, it is easy to forget that there are, in fact, very few atheists in this country. There also aren't that many Christians. Okay, what you, what you have is a sort of vast middle group, what historians call people who practice civil religion. And you've got this, this sort of group over here at one end, Christians. You've got the sort of mass in the middle who practice civil religion, or what I call functional Unitarianism, or what some recent scholar, and I still can't remember the guy's name, uh, calls, hold on, moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, Christian Smith, thank you very much. And his, his uh, phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism, is better than my functional Unitarianism. Uh, but there's this, this vast group of Americans who sort of believe that, and then you've got your fury atheists over here. All right, um, and, and what do these people believe uh, in this sort of vast middle group? I mean, they believe there's a God. They believe that man has a soul as well as a body. They believe that there's a life after death. Uh, the, the, best, the best way to understand their, their understanding of life after death is to look at the movies. Uh, I've spent years building a list of movies that show uh, the afterlife, and I'll just name a few here. Uh, Heaven Can Wait, What Dreams May Come, Ghost, it's a Wonderful Life, Gladiator, and Dead Like Me. There are, of course, many others. Uh, perhaps uh, you know of one that's not on my list. I'd be happy to hear after church of a, another movie that shows the afterlife that, uh, that I don't actually have on my list. But all of these movies have one thing in common. And the, uh, the one thing they have in common is that they sort of affirm the theology of this sort of vast central group of Americans, the functional Unitarianism, this this idea that the good people go to heaven and the bad people, well, we're not really sure what happens to them. But anyhow, the, all the good people go to heaven. And since, since obviously God would, would use no standard of goodness other than our own, basically anyone we consider to be good is obviously in with God and goes to heaven when they die. And, uh, I mean, have, have you ever seen someone after watching It's a Wonderful Life just just throw the remote control down in frustration and say, oh, it's so frustrating, that movie. Uh, there's, there's never once any mention of our need for a mediator, of, of our need for there to be uh, some sort of representative for man, a, a, a priestly intercessor who will make us right with God. Oh, that movie just makes me want to, ooh. <laughs> okay, the theology of that movie is lame. Same with all of these movies. All of them teach that the good people go to heaven when they die. And that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. There are no good people. There is no one good, not even one. The civil religion believed in by most Americans is dead wrong. The movies teach that a mediator is not necessary. And that is what the vast majority of Americans believe. And so today's message is actually not going to focus on the original Reformation question of how many mediators there are between God and man. 
Instead, today I'm going to focus on the more basic question of whether or not a mediator is even necessary. Do we even need a mediator between God and man? Of course, the main point of today's message is yes, you need a mediator. Why does God wait 4,000 years to send Jesus? Adam and Eve fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. God waits 4,000 years before sending the promised Messiah. Could not Adam's firstborn son have been the promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent? Could have. Could have been. God chose to wait. The question is why. I believe the main reason God waited those 4,000 years was to prepare us for the coming of Christ, that we needed to be taught about the holiness and justice of God, how great that is. We needed to be taught about our own sin, how deep and extensive that is. We needed to be taught of the insurmountable gap between God and us as a result, and that the only solution to that problem is, in fact, a mediator. I ask you, please, to turn with me to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. It is the fourth book in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. If the purpose of that 4,000 years of waiting was to prepare us for the coming of Christ, and, uh, and, and most specifically to convince us that there has to be some middle person between God and man, then uh, the only way for us today to benefit from that 4,000 years of preparation is, of course, for us to read and study the Old Testament, okay? And, and that is why we have the Old Testament, for us to understand the importance of the New Testament. Uh, so I want us to look at some passages that teach on this topic of a mediator. And we're going to look at the book of Numbers, and I ask you to turn to Numbers 14. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that there are many of different uh, examples of, of various uh, people engaging in mediatorial functions of one sort or another. And I had the worst trouble deciding which passages to pick. And finally, I just chose a very practical reason here. We're looking at Numbers because it's my experience that, that many, many Christians try at least once in their life to read through the whole Bible. They, by golly, I'm just going to sit down and read it all. And they get through Genesis, great, it's all narrative. They get through Exodus, and, you know, they hit that tabernacle stuff at the end, and that really slows them down. Uh, but then they hit Leviticus and die. Okay? And uh, there's probably, probably many people in here have died in Leviticus. And, and so you never get to numbers. And it, uh, the historical narrative breaks off in Exodus, but picks up in Numbers 11. And, uh, you know, what I, what I always tell people when they're reading the Bible is, you know, stop in Exodus 34 and, and pick back up in Numbers 11. And uh, you say, well, wait a minute, you're telling them to skip part of the Bible. Yes, I am. They can always go back and get it later. I mean, and, and just let me say that to you. You know, the, we're told to meditate on the scriptures day and night. God never tells us we have to read it in order. Okay, so please feel perfectly comfortable next time you say, by golly, I'm just going to read it all. To uh, skip the stuff that's hard to get through, you can always go back and look at it later. So uh, since uh, my experience is people tend to be more familiar with Exodus and Numbers, let's look at some examples in the book of Numbers. All right, and give it a go here. So we're looking at Numbers 14. For our first example of a story in which we see a mediator in our mediatory figure, of course, is Moses. We're looking at uh, Numbers 14, beginning at verse 1. The Israelites have, uh, spies have just come back and brought back a bad report about the land of Canaan. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. 
the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation, the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs I have done among them? I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. You recall this is the tenth time they've put God to the test since coming out of Egypt. And God just says, I'm sick of it. And his threat is to do what? To all three million of them. Just wipe out the whole nation and just reboot, restart with Moses from scratch. Okay, that is his threatened punishment here. Continuing in verse 13. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them, in a pillar of cloud by day, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Why does God forgive them? Because Moses prays for them. They say, is, is it really just that simple or that obvious? Yes. Uh, and that's the point. The point is, is that they deserve condemnation. They deserve rejection. Uh, they end up with forgiveness. And the only reason God forgives them, it's not because they deserve it. It's simply because they have a mediator, uh, a go-between person who prays on their behalf and God listens to him. Moses, of course, functioning as a type for Christ. Let's look uh, at a second example at the end of chapter 16. Please turn just a couple pages to the end of Numbers chapter 16. And while you're turning there, let me just say something on the word mediator. You know, if, if I understand correctly, there are actually some people in our society today who have that as a job title. Okay, there are actually paid mediators. Uh, and their job is to reconcile people who are having conflicts. Uh, so some of them actually say that's their job title. Some use some other word that has a similar meaning. Uh, and so there is a sense in which using the word mediator can be confusing because if two people in a, in a company, say, have a serious conflict and a mediator is brought in to resolve it, uh, the, the sort of understanding is that both parties are at least partly to, to blame. You know, the, the blame is never all on one side. But uh, in the conflict between God and man, the, the blame is entirely on our side. 
All right, so in that sense, the word mediator can, can be a little bit confusing. The, the more common word the Bible uses for this is actually priest. Uh, this, this is a priestly function. That is why uh, the preacher here never does what? Never turns his back to the congregation. You'll never see me turn my back to you, okay? Because the instant the pastor turns his back, he's not a pastor or a minister anymore. He's just become a what? He's just become a priest. That's right. A priest's job is to represent the people to God. That's what a priest does, okay? I'm not a priest, okay? A, a pastor is a messenger, an angelos. His job is to bring the word of God to God's people, okay? Uh, and that, so again, that, that physical action is very significant, Okay, you never ever see us turn our back to you, okay, during a, during a sermon, all right? A priest represents the people to God. A priestly or mediatorial function. Let's look at a second example of this, uh, Numbers uh, 16, beginning at verse 41. Numbers 16, beginning at verse 41. The day before, Korah, Dathan, and their followers had been killed by God, some in an earthquake, some sort of the whole flamethrower thing out of the, uh, out of the tabernacle, and the people have had a night to think about it, and the next morning, this is what they have to say. We're picking up at verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. How anyone could accuse them of causing an earthquake is beyond me, but that is literally what they're being accused of. When the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. So again, here's the threat of just the, all three million being killed and God starting over with Moses. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. So Aaron took it as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. So again, uh, you know, doesn't, we don't know exactly how God is, is killing them, but it's almost like a wave going through them and everyone's just dropping over dead. And Aaron, Aaron literally takes uh, the, the, the coal from the altar and he literally runs into the assembly just between the living and the dead and makes atonement. And that is what stops the wrath of God. So again, just a very powerful visual image of how uh, they are forgiven of their sin, not because they deserve it, uh, but because of the work of a priestly intercessor on their behalf. For one final example, please turn to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Again, I was sort of answering the basic question of why God waited 4,000 years to send Christ. It was to drive this point home over and over again that the only way for us to be forgiven is through the work of a mediator or priest. Numbers 21, beginning at verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out, by the way, to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. You recall, of course, that this is the passage Jesus refers to in the two verses right before the most famous verse in the Bible. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That all look to him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And then, of course, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life life. Again, the people are forgiven only because of the work of uh, Moses. You know that I am a great lover of fiction. I am a fiction author, of course. We have named three of our children after fictional characters. Uh, And uh, I am a great fan of literary Christ figures. Uh, in the story of Narnia, of course, uh, we have Aslan, Lord of the Rings, interestingly, interestingly splits the Christ figure into three characters, uh, Gandalf, Aragorn, and Frodo. Uh, Gandalf, something like Christ's pr- uh, prophetic office, uh, Aragorn, something like his kingly office, and Frodo, a rough parallel to his priestly office. Actually, a fascinating thing. I, I don't think Tolkien consciously intended that, but it actually works pretty well. Uh, Harry Potter, go figure. Uh, didn't see that one coming. Uh, I mean, you know, you look at book five, it's sort of classic tragedy. You know, Harry's tragic flaw leads to the death of, you know, his only family member, you know? So you, you, you don't see him popping up as a Christ figure in book seven, so it just blindsides you totally. Uh, I will even allow, partly, Edward Cullen. No. <laughs> partly. Okay, and here's why. Okay? He has supernatural powers, okay? Okay, he, he extends an offer of unconditional love and marriage to someone who doesn't deserve it. And he secures for her an everlasting life and a radically transformed body. Okay. okay. To that extent, I will even allow Edward Cullen, of course, of the Twilight series as a Christ figure, but, but only to that extent, okay? But uh, much as I appreci- appreciate the, uh, the, uh, the almost unavoidable appearance of uh, Christ figures in literature, and actually a fascinating study can be done on that, uh, to my way of thinking, none of these literary characters really demonstrate the importance of mediation. And that is an important lack uh, present in all of these Christ figures. In, in every case, at least of what I named, the Christ figure is not, is not mediating between the person and God, but is in fact saving the uh, other people from some sort of Satan figure. Aslan saves Edward from the White Witch. Uh, Frodo saves everyone from Sauron. Uh, Harry Potter, of course, from Voldemort, and 
people are saved from uh, the Volturi, although uh, Edward does not uh, pop up as a Christ figure really at the very end there, interestingly enough. Uh, did Jesus come to save us from Satan? Well, yes, he did, obviously, okay. But did Jesus first and foremost come to save us from Satan? N no, he first and foremost came to save us from God. He came to save us from God, from the wrath of God, from the justice of God. God sent us a mediator to save us from himself. That is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Okay, it is most especially saving from God that we need. Yes, we need saving from our own sinful nature. Yes, we need saving from the, the consequences of the fall uh, in a more general sense, obviously from demonic powers. But most especially, the, the core issue of life is that we are sinners and we are going to be judged by a holy and just God. We need a go-between, a priest, a mediator, a lawyer to represent us before God if we are going to have any hope at all on that day. My uh, favorite synonym for mediator is the word lawyer or attorney. Uh, I always find lawyer jokes ironic since, and I've heard some great lawyer jokes since coming to this congregation. <laughs> but I always find lawyer jokes ironic because of course Jesus is a lawyer. And he's our lawyer. And you know, when people are, are trashing lawyers, I always sort of you know, say, so you don't like this lawyer because he, he, he defends you know, guilty people? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, yeah, I just hate lawyers who defend guilty people. Oh, you mean like Jesus? Well, well I, I hate the ones who defend you know, people when they, when they just know they're guilty and they have no excuse. Oh, you mean like Jesus? Well, well, when he defends just, just really scummy people, you know, just the, the dregs of society, you know, just the absolute worst people. Oh, you mean like Jesus? You know, I mean, that, that is what God has provided us in Christ. He has provided us with a lawyer, someone who will represent us at trial. And, and we need a lawyer. Uh, do you realize that even though the Constitution guarantees you the right to legal representation, you are actually allowed to represent yourself at trial if you want to? You are allowed to fire your lawyer, even your court-appointed lawyer, and represent yourself. Uh, now, uh, do, do you know what all the people, all the rest of the people in the court are thinking about you when you decide to defend yourself? Do, do you know what they're thinking about you? They're thinking about you that you are like the world's biggest idiot, okay? Because, because they know that that is a really stupid move, okay? So, you know, inside the judge says, of course you're allowed to do that. And inside he's like, what a moron, you know? If, if you don't trust in Christ right now, do you realize what, what you're deciding to do? You are deciding to represent yourself on that day when you go before God in judgment. And why would you do that when there is a court-appointed attorney of Jesus' caliber being freely offered to you? Why on earth would you decide to defend yourself? You need a mediator, and, and that is exactly what God has provided. He's offered you that attorney to speak on your behalf. He's the judge's own son. who has the absolute killer argument, namely that he was killed in your place. Pluralism has a tremendous grip on our culture today. Pluralism, of course, the belief that all religions are essentially the same. 
if what I'm saying is true, then all religions are obviously not the same. Does Judaism teach anything about a mediator? Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Shintoism, generic animism, generic religion, Unitarianism, Universalism. Do any of them teach that you need a mediator or that God has provided one? No, they do not. All religions are not the same. We claim that there has to be someone between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. I remember reading an article several years ago in which uh, the, the author, a, a humanist and a strong opponent of Christianity, had somehow interacted with Christians, and he, and he, he overheard that Christians believe that only, only their prayers are heard by God, that God doesn't hear the prayers of anyone else besides Christians. And, and this guy just flipped out. And so he just wrote this really nasty, sneering article just attacking Christians for being just the most arrogant people on the earth, that they, they dare to think their religion's better than anyone else's. You know, you know what, why on earth do you think God would hear your prayers and no one else's? Why does God hear our prayers and not hear the prayers of, of other people? Why? Because we're better? Because we have a mediator, because there is someone between God and us. You know, I would suggest the opposite. I, I would suggest Christians are the only people on earth who are not arrogant. I mean, we're the only people who, who are convinced that we can't go straight to God, okay, that he is too holy, our sin is too great, that we actually have to go to God through Christ, okay? And that is why we say what at the end of our prayers? In Jesus' name, all right? We are acknowledging the fact that it is not possible for sinful creatures to go directly to God, that we have to go to him through Christ. And it's, it's because of what he has done that we have this full and free access to the throne of grace. And by the way, in, in the Old Testament, what was the main way that, that believers acknowledged that they needed something between God and them? What did they do? What physical act? They were constantly offering sacrifices. And every time someone offered a sacrifice, what they were saying is, you are too holy, my sin is too great for me to just come straight to you. My sin somehow has to be dealt with. It somehow has to be covered or cleansed. And obviously the animal's blood didn't literally do that, but they were at least acknowledging that the fundamental gap between a holy God and themselves as sinful creatures. By the way, I, I just have to say this, you know, Why was Cain's sacrifice unacceptable? Because he didn't offer blood. He didn't offer blood. When Cain brought those plants to God, what he's saying is, my sin is not that big a problem. Your holiness is not that big a deal. I can come straight to you, God, without the shedding of blood to cover my sins. That was why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. I grew up in a liberal church, and I was taught that good people go to heaven and bad people, well, who knows? So I was taught the opposite of what I am teaching you now. I was taught that, well, let me put it this way. You go to, uh, you go to some five-year-olds and you ask them, you know, how can God forgive you even though he's a holy God? And you know what some five-year-olds will say? They'll say, because he's God, he can do anything. Okay, that's not the right answer. Okay, can God do anything? No, he can't. All right, the right answer is he can forgive sinners because Jesus died for their sins. All right, uh, people get a little older 
and you ask them, you know, how can God forgive you even though he's a holy and just God? And they say, well, because he's also a loving God. So just like uh, some would say that the power of God cancels out the holiness of God, others would say the love of God cancels out the holiness of God. That is not the way it works. Okay, that is not the way God works. Uh, but that's what I was taught growing up. I was taught that, you know, listen, you know, you know God is love, and, you know, if, if you try your best, you're, you're just sort of in with God. And I'm saying this because I understand the pull of that way of thinking. I understand the temptation to it. It, it represents God as, as you know, the, the opposite view is, you know, God is so mean, you know, and, you know, here you just get to, you know, really emphasize how, how loving and compassionate God is. And it's just so tempting to sort of let yourself drift into that softness and just sort of back away from the idea that there has to be a mediator. There has to be uh, a savior. Uh, I think of a book I read as a child, Bridge to Terabithia by Catherine Patterson. And uh, after uh, Leslie's death, uh, Jess, the main character, of course, is uh, terribly upset. And he's concerned about what has happened to her, uh, especially because there's an earlier conversation they have with some fundamentalist Christians who are portrayed very negatively in that book, by the way. Um, and and he's, he's concerned about her eternal destiny. She was not a Christian. And his dad says to him, Lord boy, don't be a fool. God ain't going to send any little girls to hell. And, and the idea there is just that the, you know, either people just aren't that sinful, the love of God just sort of overwhelms everything, and, and it's just so tempting to just sort of back away from this idea that there has to be a mediator and just sort of let yourself drift into that theological softness. I understand the temptation. Again, I'll give you another example. This is from the movie New Moon. Early on, while Bella is being sewn up by Carlisle, Carlisle explaining uh, Edward's concern for Bella's soul, uh, Bella asserts her belief that Carlisle will not be damned, and the basis of her assertion is what? That Carlisle is such a just a good person. That's right. I mean, he's portrayed as just this amazing person throughout the, the whole story. And how on earth could anyone like that ever be damned? He's so good. He's so kind. He does so many good things. The Bible is clear. God's love does not cancel out his justice. God's love provides a lawyer. There is a huge difference. God does not just forgive you because he loves you. He provides a lawyer because he loves you. And if you want to be forgiven, you have to accept that lawyer's services. Free of charge, praise God. You must accept them nonetheless. God waits 4,000 years for a reason. You and I are supposed to benefit from that delay. I urge you to believe that a mediator is necessary and that one has, in fact, been provided. Let's pray. God Almighty, we thank you for waiting. We thank you for waiting so long to send Christ. It was a grief to all those in the Old Testament that they did not get to see the promised Messiah. But we thank you that you spent so much time driving this point home, that there has to be someone between you and us. We thank you, Son of God, that you took on our nature, that you became one of us to become that mediator, God in the flesh, God, man, fully God and fully man. And that you, in fact, ultimately took the punishment due to us upon yourself, that we might be fully and freely forgiven. 
praise you, Lord Jesus, most excellent of mediators, priests, lawyers, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.